I wonder if you've ever been on a roller coaster. Uh, maybe you love them. Actually, I try to stay well clear of them. I mean, the whole idea, as you know, is that they take you right away up high as they can and then plunge you right down again, up and down again and again. Well, in some ways, the whole Bible story can feel a bit like a roller coaster. There are high points of God's goodness and grace and blessing, but they're often followed by terrifying plunges into sin and rebellion and disaster. I mean, you think of the Garden of Eden, and then suddenly comes the fall in Genesis 3. Or Noah, who has this wonderful rescue by God and then falls into drunkenness and sin. Or you think of the Israelites, they break out of Egypt, they get to Mount Sinai, they receive the Ten Commandments, and then they plunge into the idolatry of the golden calf. Or even in the New Testament, after the wonderful early chapters of Acts and the story of Pentecost, comes the terrible plunge of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. So here also, after the triumphant first six chapters of Joshua, promises and the crossing of the Jordan and the capture of Jericho, suddenly comes chapter 7, and the narrator plunges us down into unfaithfulness, which is a very strong word that would be spoken against Israel many times, rebellion and covenant breaking. Here it is, Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, and so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So what are these devoted things that the text talks about? Well, the word in Hebrew is actually the word cherem, and it was a feature of ancient wars, including Israel's. Since victory in battle was attributed to the gods, then everything gained would be devoted to the deity, either by being destroyed or completely transferred into new ownership and identity. In Israel's case, this goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Here I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God had told the Israelites what to do when they got into the land. When the Lord your God brings you into the land and you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, show them no mercy. And then towards the end of the chapter, in verses 25 and 26, the images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. And do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Regard it as vile and utterly detest it, for it is to be set apart for destruction. And then also in Deuteronomy, at the end of chapter 12, we read some of the reason for this. This is what the Lord says to the Israelites. After these nations that you come into the land have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by asking about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. No, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. So you notice that the real reason here was to avoid being corrupted by the idolatry and the evil practices of the Canaanites, which, sadly, 
did indeed become an endemic problem in Israel for centuries afterwards. So this chapter, Deuteronomy 7 and others, stress more that harem meant driving the other nations out, not necessarily always massacring them. And as I said last week, that language of extermination was a well-known part of the rhetorical hyperbole, the, the exaggerated language of ancient warfare, which everybody understood. And also, harem did not apply to people in times outside the land of Canaan, and even in the land of Canaan, it didn't always mean that they destroyed everything and everybody. However, in the case of Jericho, it does seem that God intended to begin with a very clear, absolute object lesson, both of his judgment and of the need for Israel to avoid all temptation to become like the Canaanites by taking what was infected, as it were, by their idolatry and their evil practices. And that is what Achan had ignored. And so people paid the penalty. And that's what verse 1 is telling us. But let's quickly then hear the rest of the story in six stages, I think. And so we begin, first of all, with the army's complacency in verses 2 to 5, as you can see it there in chapter 7. Joshua decides to follow up the capture of Jericho with a quick attack further inland at Ai. He sends out spies, and they come back with a report that sounds remarkably optimistic, doesn't it, and really rather complacent. They say, well, there's no need for the whole army to go up, just two or three companies, and even you don't need to go, Joshua. I mean, this one's easy. You notice that there's no inquiry to God. There's no word or command or instruction from God. There's no reference to God's promise. I mean, they don't even mention the Ark of the Covenant. It's almost as if God's presence doesn't get a mention, as if it's somehow no longer needed. Oh, no, we can do this ourselves. And so it all ends in tears. The tears of 36 widows and bereaved families and the humiliation and fear for the whole people of Israel, who they now become just like Rahab had said the Canaanites were already. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. And so the story shifts from uh, the army's complacency to Joshua. And we hear, secondly, of Joshua's complaint in verses 6 to 9. Joshua falls on his face before the Lord, God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, for a whole day. And then he, he pours out his complaint to God. And his words, actually, as you read them, are somewhat surprising. I mean, we can expect his opening, why? Most of us would ask why when terrible things happen. Whereas we might have thought that Joshua would say, now look, Lord, why has this happened? Why were you not fighting for us as you did at Jericho? What have we done to deserve this? Well, we often ask that question too. Only in this case, it would actually have been completely appropriate. Now, here, Joshua's why amounts almost to blaming God. His words, actually, where, where he says, doesn't he, he says, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites and all of that? He's actually echoing the complaints of the Israelites in the wilderness every time they came up against a big problem. Listen to them here. This is uh, from the book of Numbers, 
chapter 14, verses 2 to 4, where we read that all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You see, Joshua, Joshua seems in these verses to be falling into the same mood of the Israelites who could somehow never quite believe that God would always keep his promise as he had in bringing them out of Egypt. If only we'd never left Egypt, they groaned. If only we'd never crossed the Jordan, says Joshua. And then in verse 9, Joshua puts into words what he most fears, that the Canaanites would wipe Israel, Israel off the map when it was supposed to be the other way around. Only at the very end, do you notice, in the last line of verse 9, does Joshua remember whose people Israel were? and that the name and reputation of Yahweh, the God of Israel, was at stake. And he says, what then will you do for your own great name? Now, when Moses had prayed for the people after they had sinned, that was the first thing that Moses challenged God to remember. Here, it's the very last thing that Joshua mentions. Although, at least I suppose it's good that he does since, as we saw last week, the battle is the Lord's. And so, if Israel were going to be permanently defeated, then so would be their God. But, of course, that's not how God sees things at all. And so we move on, thirdly, then, to God's charge in verses 10 to 15. Stand up, says God, on your feet, almost rather impatiently, it seems. What are you doing down there on your face? See, it's no good mourning and blaming God when what really needs to happen is for the underlying reason to be exposed and dealt with. And God's charge here in these verses is emphatic. Israel has sinned. That's the problem. And ever since the Garden of Eden, this Bible story has been telling us, sin brings disaster and death. And this sin, on this occasion, is actually serious. Because, just in case we think that maybe this is all a bit overblown, over just a few bits of stolen goods and clothing and silver and gold and stuff, we need to hear the full force of what God thinks of the matter. See, remember that the identity and the distinctiveness of Israel is at stake here. And with that goes God's mission for the whole world in all the rest of the Bible story. The point is, they, the Israelites, they must not go the way of the Canaanites, or God's purposes through Israel will be lost, and there will be no blessing for all the nations, as God had promised to Abraham. God's words in these verses are really intense in Hebrew, in a way that our modern English translations don't quite get. Although, interestingly, the old King James Version does put in all the also's and evens that are there in the Hebrew. What God says is, look, Israel has sinned, and also they have violated my covenant, and also they have taken the harem, and also they have stolen, and also they have lied, and also they have put them with their own possessions. That is why 
you can't stand in front of your enemies. It's emphatic. And then come the most chilling words of all. God says the Israelites have themselves become harem in verse 12, liable to destruction, just like the Canaanites. And even worse, God says, I will not be with you anymore unless you deal with this matter. The greatest promise that God had made to Moses and to Joshua is put on hold. It's not cancelled. It's as if it's temporarily suspended until they get rid of the contagion of Canaanite identity and idolatry and evil. So God goes on then to tell Joshua how to identify the culprit in a way that shows how the whole people, the tribes and the clans and the families, are all caught up in the effect of this sin, which God again describes in verse 15 as horrendous. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and done an outrageous thing in Israel. And so that brings us then fourthly to Achan's confession there in verses 16 to 21. Can you see it? And now we learn why Achan's full name was given to us in verse 1, where we read not only his name, Achan, but also the name of his father and his grandfather. That was his father's house, as they called it in, in Israel. Then came his clan name, Zerah, and then his tribe, Judah. And so, starting at the largest level of tribe, clan, and family, each one of these is then identified, presumably by some form of casting lots with God directing the outcome, until eventually Achan and his immediate family are identified. And then, under Joshua's instruction, Achan makes a full confession and identifies the things that he had taken. And there it is in verse 20 and 21. It's interesting, isn't it? All the way through this chapter and chapter 6, everything in Jericho is described as harem. That is, something that was be utterly given over to God and completely destroyed as incompatible with the worship of Yahweh God. And in verse 1 has told us that that's what Achan had taken, disobeying God's repeated instructions. But Achan, you notice, doesn't use that word harem. He just calls it plunder in verse 21, just something to be coveted and taken for himself. It's as if he was not interested in God's glory and keeping himself and his family uncontaminated by the idolatry and the evil of Canaan. All he saw was plunder, booty, something that he could use to secure his own family's future luxury. But it's also interesting that the sin of Achan here is described, or he describes his own sin, in a way that echoes the temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember in Genesis 3, she saw the tree, its fruit looked good for food, it was desirable, and she took and she ate. And here Achan uses the same language. He says, I saw, it was good. That's the word that is translated here, beautiful, this beautiful robe. I desired and I took. You see, Achan, like all of us, one way or another, is replicating the very first sin 
in which we human beings decided that we could disbelieve God's warnings, disobey God's instructions. And yes, it always ends in tears and worse. Sin is serious. And this story is urging us to take that seriously too. And so the story reaches its horrible ending as we read fifthly of the people's condemnation in verses 22 to 25. You see, the whole people had suffered the consequences and now the whole people take action. Achan's disobedient breaking of the covenant had taken his whole family outside the protective boundaries of covenant allegiance. Most likely, of course, they had cooperated with him, or at least colluded with him in receiving and hiding these goods within their own tent. And so they, his family, and the goods together are all treated like the people of Jericho. They have behaved like Canaanites, and so they suffer the same judgment. And the way our text describes what they did to Achan and his family strongly echoes what the Israelites had been told to do if any town in Israel went after other gods. This takes us back to the book of Deuteronomy. In other words, this sin of Achan and his family was being treated as seriously as idolatry itself. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 12. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that troublemakers, you notice that word, have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, then you must inquire and probe and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true, and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, then you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. You must destroy it completely, its people and its livestock. Gather the plunder of the town in the middle of the public square and completely burn it and the plunder and the harem as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And that town is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt. And can you hear those echoes in the text? Troublers of Israel. See, that's what's happening here. This story of Achan is like a kind of terrible object lesson in the seriousness of the distinction between faithfulness and unfaithfulness to God's covenant. You remember that last week we saw how a Canaanite could become an insider, an Israelite, part of God's own people through faith and action. And that, of course, was Rahab, whose story was woven all the way through chapter 6. And now here we see how an Israelite could become an outsider, a Canaanite cast out of God's own people through unfaithfulness and disobedience in action. So you see these two contrasting stories in Joshua 6 and 7 show us very clearly that the issue in the book of Joshua, as in the book of Judges and right on through the whole story, is not just a simple one of military conquest, you know, glory to the Israelites and judgment on the Canaanites. No, the real issue is faithfulness and obedience to the living God. The blessing of belonging to God's people is open to any who turn to him in repentance and faith, even his enemies, as we saw last week. And conversely, the reality of God's judgment 
faces even those within God's people who turn away from him in unfaithfulness and rebellion and disobedience. Rahab's story is an invitation to outsiders. Achan's story is a warning to insiders. And it's a warning that we must heed. Because as Paul says to us, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he warns us not to fall into the same kind of sins that the Israelites did. This is what he writes there, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And he gives some examples of Israelite history. And then he goes on. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Although, of course, he encourages us with the added words, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And so that brings us, finally, to our sixth point as the story ends, where we notice the Bible's commemoration there in verse 26. Do you see it? Where we read this, that over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks which remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. And it's another one of those great piles of stones that we read about in several places in the book of Joshua. And on the one hand, of course, it stood as a terrible warning of what had happened there. And it was indeed remembered, because near the end of the book of Joshua, when the uh, tribes of Israel thought that, you remember there were two and a half tribes that settled on the other side of Jordan, and they thought that they were somehow opting out of the covenant by building an altar of their own there, they used the story of Achan as a warning to them. So in Joshua chapter 22, Verses 19 and 20 we read, Do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. Because when Achan, the son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? And he was not the only one who died for his sin. And indeed he wasn't, as we saw. But let's end on a positive note as we did last Sunday. The valley where they buried Achan was named the Valley of Achor ever since. Achan, Achor. The words are very similar. And the word, of course, Valley of Achor, means the Valley of Trouble. Because tragically, as God led the Israelites right into the Promised Land from the very beginning almost, there was trouble. And it had to be dealt with and remembered. But here's the thing. Hosea picks up that memory and reverses it. And God promises through Hosea that when God would act in the future to restore and redeem his people, having forgiven their sin and their unfaithfulness, then the valley of Ahor will no longer be a vale of trouble, but one of hope. Let me read to you from Hosea chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. God, of course, is speaking to Israel like a wife. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And then I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Ahor, 
a door of hope, from trouble to hope. And there she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of Egypt. I will betroth you to me forever, says the Lord. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion, and I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Hosea chapter 2, the valley of Achor, where Achan was stoned and buried, becomes the valley of hope for the future. And of course, we know, don't we, that wonderful promises like that in the Old Testament point us ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's only through him that we can know forgiveness, because he bore in himself the ultimate judgment of God on all our sin and rebellion. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He bore the curse and the condemnation in a way that was far, far worse than Jericho or Ai or even Achan. You see, Achan was cast out and died for his own sin. But his death spared the rest of the people of Israel the destruction of God's judgment. And Jesus also was cast out and died, but for no sin of his own at all. And his death opens the way for people of any nation all over the world to be spared God's judgment and experience his forgiveness and salvation. Because that is where this story goes. That is what that pile of stones pointed to. And that, of course, is why we are able to be here today as sinners saved by grace and seeking to respond to that grace in faith and love and worship and obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. It is indeed a troubling story, but we want to learn from it what you teach us of the seriousness of sin of the importance of seeking always to be faithful and obedient to your words and to follow your instructions. But we thank you also for the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which points us to a better way and to a better land and a better rest. Help us to put our faith and our trust in him and to know that eternal salvation that can be ours in your new creation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Chris, for that challenging message. As we close now, we're going to sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us, and then our service will be finished. <laughs>